Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. The past few weeks, we've been looking at what love looks like. And the first week, uh, Ben highlighted the fact that if we are to truly be able to love the way that Jesus did, that we have to get our love from God first, that the type of love that we need to show and model as believers, as Christ followers, is really an impossible love. It's an agape love, and it's an unconditional love that we have to get from Jesus first. And then the next week, we looked at um, how Jesus said, my command is this, that you are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's a response to the love that we've received from God. There's a vertical response back to God to love him with all that we are, with all of our volition, all of our motivation, with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. But today, we're going to look at what does that look like as we love outward, horizontally to the world around us. This week I was um, browsing online, just kind of goofing off, being super productive, and I came across an article online, and it said this, buy or die, 27 prepper items you need to survive the apocalypse. So being the responsible, level-headed person I am, I clicked it, because I wanted to see what I needed to survive the apocalypse. And the very top of the article, it said this, we're all preppers now. And I was like, that could not be more true because of the last three years that we've walked through and how precarious the world is that we're living in as we've experienced the social anxiety and the reality of things are a little bit, hmm, they're not really as safe as we used to think they were. Anybody? In fact, I had a friend who, um, her dad, before COVID, was a full-on prepper. Like, he was, like, ready to go for anything. And when COVID hit, he sent her a care package in the, in the mail. And guess what was in it? Clorox wipes, toilet paper, N95 masks. And he was like, I, I was ready for this. You're welcome. <laughs> and I think a lot of us, of us have realized how not ready for things we really were. And so there's kind of something in us now that's like, I think I want to be a little bit more set. So being one of those people, I clicked the article, and it listed basically survival gear. What are the things that you need if the infrastructure fell through, if the economy fell through? And so it had things like solar chargers, rope. It said to have Advil and penicillin on hand, multi-tools, water filters, duct tape. I was like, check, check, check. I've got all those except for penicillin. And then it said this, it said cans of sardines, like stockpile cans of sardines. I was like, "Mm, (laughs) I don't know about that. And then the one that got me where I was like, this is where I draw the line, was it said Crocs sandals, Crocs shoes, that this is what you need to survive the apocalypse. And I was like, "Mm mm-mm, not worth it. Take me home, Jesus. I'm not going to wear those things. I'm just being honest, all right? But these, these really are precarious times that we're living in. This is, we're living in a world where things don't feel quite as secure as they used to. Maybe they were never secure, but we've had a reality check over the past few years uh, through, through COVID, through things like the Ukraine-Russian war, even things like the gas prices. We're like, things don't feel quite as safe as they used to. 
We have experienced firsthand how fragile our world really is. And we all posture ourselves in different ways. When the world feels unsafe or when we feel like there's a threat looming upon us, we all have different reactions and responses. There's actually a physiological response, your amygdala, that when you feel threatened, you do one of three things. You either fight, you flight, run away, or you freeze. And so all of us have a natural reaction when we feel unsafe that we are going to react. So you might be a fighter. You might be a prepper who's stockpiling guns and ammo. I don't know. You know who you are, and I think some of us know who you are as well. (laughs) Or you might be somebody who's like a flight person, like I'm stockpiling my basement, and I'm ready to hunker down for a year, whatever it takes. Or you might be somebody that just freezes. You don't know what to do. But this is real stuff that we all are kind of trying to figure out and navigate. But just like us, in our modern day times where things feel precarious and unsafe, the early church faced similar struggles, believe it or not. They faced very similar struggles to what we're facing today. And they also had a choice in how they were going to respond. And so today we're going to be in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. So if you would get out your Bibles, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are present, that you are here, that you are good and you are faithful, Lord. And not only are you present in each and every day of our lives, God, but you are present right here, right now as we dive into your word, Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate your truth that your voice would be the loudest voice in this room, Lord God, and that you would give us soft hearts, courageous hearts that respond and put it into practice today. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. 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 So we're going to be in Romans, specifically Romans 12, specifically Romans 12, 9 through 21. But before we get there, I want to set this up for you because the New Testament was set in the time of the first century AD. So Jesus came, he was born, onto the, born to this earth, he lived a sinless life, he was crucified, he was raised, uh, he rose again, he ascended into heaven and he empowered the church. But then the church was like, now what? Now what do we do? And so a lot of the New Testament are books and letters from the apostles to the church telling them, this then is how you should live. But the world that they were living in was a confusing place. The, it was set, the New Testament is set in the Roman Empire. It was extreme, extremely diverse socially and politically, and it was constantly characterized by turmoil and unrest. The Roman rule was oppressive. There was high taxes, there was extreme hierarchy, there was division of classes. Slaves, women, foreigners were treated as less than. And so the church is trying to figure out how do we live out our lives in the midst of this culture that we find ourselves in? What does it look like to be a Christ follower? Along with that, there was massive religious diversity. I'm going to give you some examples of what they were experiencing and think if you can relate to any of these. For one, they had a Roman emperor, and he was viewed as the savior. In fact, they were supposed to give their allegiance 100% to the Roman emperor because he was viewed as the one who brought salvation to the empire. Along with that, they were influenced by Greek Hellenization. And the Greeks, if you remember from elementary school, were all about mythology, right? So they were polytheists. So there was this syncretism going on in the religious practices of trying to figure out, is there one God? Are there many? What does it look like to live out our faith in this environment? 
Along with that, there was the influence of the Jewish people, and there was four specific Jewish groups that influenced the church. One was the Pharisees. Now, these guys get the bad rap in Scripture, but the Pharisees were all about uh, being rule followers and having a very narrow box of what it looked like to be pure and follow God correctly. They were kind of the fundamentalists of that time. But then you had the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were all about Um, you had to go to the temple and go through a priest in order to encounter God. So your your, um, spirituality could not be lived out in any other way. You had to do it within the spiritual house of God through a priest. Then you had the Essenes, and the Essenes were ones that went away into the desert and hid away in the caves for safety to try to protect themselves. And lastly, you had the Zealots, and the Zealots were all about fighting for their rights, picking up swords and defending themselves at all costs in order to protect their way of life. So you had this high allegiance to an empire, you had syncretism of religions, you had preservationists, purists, you had people that had to go through a priest, you had people hiding away in the desert, and then you had people picking up arms to fight. Does any of this sound familiar? Anybody? I can relate, that's for sure. So the early church emerged in this time period with all of this craziness going on, and they were trying to figure out how then shall we live? The church was spreading like wildfire, but they were, it was confusing. It was confusing times. And so a lot of the books in the New Testament are addressing these very things. And the book of Romans specifically was addressing this. And it was written in approximately 55 AD by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote it to the church in Rome to give them direction and clarity about what it means to be a Christ follower and how to live that out. And Romans is one of the most incredible theological books in all of Scripture. In fact, when I was in Bible school, I took a class in Romans, and we spent the entire semester on just the first eight chapters. There's 16 chapters. We spent the whole semester on just eight chapters because it was so rich and deep. Um, And so today we're going to look at chapter 12, which I didn't do in Bible school, so good luck. Um, (laughs) But the first, actually the first 11 chapters are all about what it means that we have been saved, what it means, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so there's chapter after chapter just telling us about the freedom that we have in Christ, that there is no condemnation, that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are free, we are at liberty to be healthy and whole, that we can approach, um, that is actually in Hebrews, but we can approach the throne of grace freely to find help in time of need. But this is the idea in Romans, is that because of what God has done through us in Jesus, we now have freedom, okay? It's rich in theology. But then we come to Romans 12, which is where we're going to be at today. It starts out with a very, very important word. It starts out with the word, therefore. Therefore. And this word, therefore, is this pivot point in the book of Romans. And it's not just talking about the previous chapter or the previous few chapters. It's literally talking about all of those chapters, Romans 1 through 11, because of what Jesus has done through us, through Christ, Therefore, this then is how you should live, sets up Romans 12. So we're going to look at Romans 12 today, and there's a couple of sections I just want to hit briefly, and then we're going to go deeper into Romans 9 through 21. But the first section is verses 1 and 2, 
and I'm going to read it for you. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's a couple things I want to highlight here in this section. But the first is bodies. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This word bodies in the text is the same idea as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not just your physical body, but it is literally the entirety of who you are is to be offered back to the Lord. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, the motivations of your heart, the choices that you make are to be offered to God. And then it says, as a living sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. It's not a one and done dead sacrifice, but it's a daily sacrifice that each and every day you are to offer all that you are to the Lord as a sacrifice to him. It says, this is how we worship this is our worship to the Lord. Do you know that worship is not just songs and like a 20-minute time of song singing on a Sunday morning? I think we know that, but sometimes we don't really know that. Worship is about offering all that you are in praise to God each and every day for the sake of what he's done for you and the sake of the world around you. And so we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices as our spiritual act of worship. And then in verse two, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because of what God has done for us through Christ Jesus, we are to think differently. We are to live differently. The kingdom that we are a part of now is not of this world. We don't do things the way the world does them. It's an upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first and the leaders are the servants of all. There's something about us as the people of God that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. There, we're, there's like an amphibian-like quality to us where we're in, but we're not of. There's this hybrid nature to the way that we live our lives. We're not hiding away and separating ourselves, but we're also not immersed in the way that the world thinks. We are different, but we are present. The world is not forming us, but we are forming it. Amen? Amen. So we are to live sacrificially. But then it goes on in verse 3, and I'm going to read this text for you. It's long, but I just want to highlight a few things. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many... We, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So if your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And so we're to live sacrificially, but here I would sum this one up as serve humbly. Serve humbly. We are not to think of ourselves as more highly than we ought. 
Sometimes, though, we struggle with what it means to be humble people before God. And I would just say that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is simply thinking rightly about yourself. It is agreeing with God about who he says you are. It's not trying to one-up yourself or to compare yourself or to lower yourself compared to somebody else. It's simply acknowledging that all that you are and all that you have been given in Christ is from him. It's not about you. Whatever you've been given, whatever gift you've been given, whether it's leadership or mercy or generosity or encouragement, it's from him. It's not a comparison game. It's been given as a grace to bless and serve those around you. And let's go now to verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we are to live sacrificially, and we are to serve humbly, and we are to love practically. This is about love in action, love in action. It is about the horizontal love of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul begins this key section of Romans 12 with the word Love, love, love must be sincere. Love is the marker that should characterize Christians. It must be sincere. In the New Living Translation, it says this, don't just pretend to love others, really love them, really love them. This isn't a bless your heart. (laughs) We all know what that means. This is a I love you and I'm gonna show you through the way that I live my life. And there's two primary directions for love that emerge in this text. As we love horizontally, we see two primary directions. One is love for one another. And this is what I would say, that these are the people inside the family of God. One another are your one another's. They're the ones that are next to you, that are connected to you, that you're in relationship with. But we also see a command to love not just one another, but to love the other. Love the other those on the outside of the family of God, those who would be considered your enemy, those who persecute you, those who give you a hard time, 
those who give you an amygdala response where you want to fight, flight, or freeze, that is your one another. And we all have, or I'm sorry, that is your other. (laughs) I think our one another's do that sometimes too. Um, (laughs) But we all have an other. We all have an other. And I could list off who those people are, but we all have our own people that would qualify as the, the other, those outside of relationship. But we're told, bless those who persecute you. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge. This is countercultural stuff. This is upside down kingdom stuff. Um, and Paul is urging Christians, Christ followers, to live out a life of love that runs counter to every natural instinct, every natural urge, every cultural influence, every societal standard that we are to live differently as the people of God. In verse 20, he says, on the contrary, and it's quoting actually Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. Now this text is so challenging that when I was growing up and I read the burning coals on your head, what I was taught was that it actually means that by showing them kindness, by showing your enemy kindness, that you'll actually bring fire on their head and then they'll get theirs. (laughs) Because it was so hard to reconcile and to deal with. But sorry guys, that's not what it's talking about. (laughs) Sorry to break the news. There's a lot of different explanations for this, and you could read all kinds of different ones, but the one that I think is closest to the context here um, is there's a concept in Egyptian literature where a repentant person would carry coals of fire and a bowl on his head, and they were a symbol of a change of mind that takes place as a result of a deed of love. And so ultimately, what's being referred to by this phrase is what love does in terms of reconciliation. We should use deeds of love to turn an enemy into a friend. To turn an enemy into a friend. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, in verse 43, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In 46, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind to only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Even the world loves those that love them, but not us, because we are a different people. We are a different people, and that's what we're being called to in this text. There's an old song, um, When I was growing up, my mom used to sing it. It's from like the 1960s. And it goes, And they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Do do they know that we are Christians by our love? That is the standard. The world is supposed to see and experience that we are different because of our love. So the early church received this text, they read this text, they applied it to their lives, 
and they lived it out. Despite all the craziness of the world that they were living in, despite the confusion of the different approaches to society, despite the religious syncretism, and all of that, they read it and they lived it out, and as a result, they literally changed the world. Fifty years after the Book of Romans was written and given to the Roman church, there was a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger, and he had just become the governor, and he decided to do a tour all around his area to get information about the different people groups and to kind of figure out what was going on. And so he took notes and made observations, and then he wrote this in his observations of the Christians. He said, Christians were proclaiming a new message. They were caring for the sick, organizing social events, providing hospitality, burying the dead, supporting widows and orphans, and raising money for the destitute. And he was blown away. And in fact, he was quite offended by this because he felt like they were doing his job. And he became actually one of the greatest persecutors of the church because of this, in a weird, interesting turn of events. Because he saw that the key markers of the early church were radical generosity, radical community, and radical hospitality. And it didn't make sense, and it was messing things up. (laughs) Radical generosity, because Christians were developing a massive social welfare system which the Roman Empire could not compete with. They were living out the value to live sacrificially and to serve humbly and to love practically for the world around them. There was an Athenian philosopher named Aristides who said, if anyone among them comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, like listen to this, they fast for two or three days for him and this way they can supply any poor man with the food that he needs. So this wasn't just about giving a little bit out of their pot from the dinner that night. They literally would fast for two or three days so that they could give to people in need. He goes on to say, such behavior brought prosperity to the whole empire. Because of them, good flows on in the world. Because of them. Radical community. The philosopher Celsus noted that Christians won converts not through public debate among elites, not through social media arguments, but through quiet witness in their homes and places of work. The church became like family to aliens and outsiders who moved in and out of the cities. In a time where there was a lot of transient populations moving in and out for work, the Christians opened their homes and opened their arms and welcomed them in to the family. They welcomed outsiders regardless of their background and overcame the cultural divisions of gender, ethnicity, and class that characterized the Roman world. It was completely counter-cultural. Enemies became friends, strangers, and sojourners had become part of the family. And radical hospitality. Romans 12, 13 says, practice hospitality. And a lot of times we equate hospitality with Martha Stewart more than Jesus Christ. Anybody? (laughs) It's all about hostess with the mostest and putting our best out. But a lot of times the way we view hospitality is about making ourselves look better. It's about entertainment more than it is about service. But to the ancient Christians, hospitality was a core part of loving one's neighbor, both one another and the other. It was a practice of welcoming those who Jesus calls the least of these into the heart of community. 
And in fact, the words hospitality and hospital and hospice all come from the same Latin root. The word hospitum, which means a place of rest and protection for the ill and the weary. So the outsiders and the unlovely and the unwanted human beings were brought inside the circle of protection and care and love. And as a result of this, the early church radically influenced the world around them by providing a sense of belonging that wasn't available anywhere else. Church historian Diana Butler Bass made a startling observation when she wrote this. From what historians can gather, it was hospitality, not martyrdom, that served as the main motivator for conversions in the early church. Despite the extreme testimony that it was for somebody to die for the sake of Jesus Christ, even more compelling was the testimony of giving up their life each and every day for their neighbor, all because of love. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we relate to this today? As I read these stories and I read this text, I am challenged because I don't know if my life looks like this. And I read these stories about the early church and I'm like, we have to do better and so there's something in me that there's something in me that rises up and says someone should do something. <laughs> someone should do something or even better, the church should do something. Why isn't the church doing something? And then I have to look in the mirror and come to a reality check which is this. We are the church. We are the church. The church is not some institution that should do something. We we are the church. We are the church. The world is at war. Families are at war. Churches are at war. And we live in precarious times in a polarized world. And we are called as the people of God to be a people of love, a people of sincere love that live out love for the world around us, not just those who are our friends and family, but those who are the other. We are to live out love. We are the church. We are called to live this way. We are called to live this way. A true mark of maturity in your followership of Jesus 
is that your love should continue to deepen more and more and more throughout your life. Your love for Jesus and your love for people. And as Christians, we use a lot of other badges of maturity besides love. We know a lot. We believe all the right things. We can argue our theology better than anyone else around us. But if you want to know how mature you are, how do you love one another and how do you love the other? Let's stand. I stand with you today as simply one of you who's challenged by this text, um, who's challenged by the fact that I want to live and love differently than the world around me, and I don't know that I get it right all the time. But what we know is that love comes from God. It's not something that we have to strive for. It's not something that we have to like pull up our bootstraps and work really hard for. It's simply about posturing our hearts to the Lord and letting him change us from the inside out, letting him shape our hearts to where we feel compassion for those around us rather than offense, where our hearts are moved with compassion and that our hands and our feet are moved with action. And so my heart today isn't to make you feel bad. (laughs) It's just to simply say, church, we need to love like Jesus and we can't do that in our own strength. We have to do that through the love that God has given us first. And so as we go before the Lord today in prayer, that's my, that's my simple encouragement is if you feel like your heart is hard towards people, maybe there's somebody that comes to mind and you're like, mm-mm, not them. I would just encourage you to submit that before the Lord today and just ask him to soften your heart. Maybe, maybe your challenge today is that you're like, yeah, I love people, but I don't really know what that looks like. Like, what does it look like to love them? Should I like fast for three days and give everybody my food? Like, is that what that looks like? My encouragement today is as we pray that you would just let the Lord bring to mind what that looks like. Let him bring it to mind. Because this isn't a rule following thing. It's a spirit empowered thing where the Lord can reveal that to you. So let's pray this morning. Jesus, we love you. And we are so very grateful for who you are that you loved us first, Lord. While we were still sinners, you died for us, God. And that's the type of calling that we have now as your uh, hands and feet here on this earth, that we are to live sacrificially and we are to serve humbly and we are to love in practical and radical ways, Lord Jesus. But we cannot and will not do it in our own strength, God. This isn't about earning your approval, but this is about simply submitting to who you are and letting your Holy Spirit work through us. So start with our hearts, Jesus. Start with our hearts, God. Soften us with compassion for the world around us. Give us your eyes to see people the way that you see them, Lord. For those places where we are holding offense and anger and we see someone as the enemy, as the other, I pray that you would begin to change our hearts, Lord Jesus. Give us your compassion, God. Give us your compassion, God. Break our hearts for what breaks yours, Lord Jesus. Give us your compassion, God. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who are struggling with what what does this look like in my life? What does this look like in my workplace, in my neighborhood? 
in the places where I go. Lord, give us creative, inspired ideas, God. This isn't about a checklist of doing all the things right, but it's about being courageous to be your hands and feet when you ask us to. And so, Lord Jesus, we say yes. When you call us to act, we say yes. Give us your heart and give us your hands and feet to put it into action. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So very, very simply today, I've got some action steps for you. If you guys want to snap a picture, you can. But it's just number one, ask God to fill your heart with his love and compassion. Number two, ask God for creative ways to put this love into action for one another and for the other. And number three, courageously put it into practice this week. Amen? Amen.